Welcome to Parallel Worlds Audio Issue 9, May 2020. Expertly recorded the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial Science fiction and futurism more generally changes over time. Our ideas of what our future includes are inescapably shaped by two factors. Our understanding of science and contemporary social tensions. One of the most interesting aspects of science fiction for me are the what-if thought experiments it allows. As our Let's Talk About This Month explores, Altered Carbon is one of Netflix's hottest sci-fi properties, and, the first season at least, extrapolates smartly from the central conceit of extended human lifespans to ask how that would change society and our ideas of self. The Mad Max franchise has been prodding at the frayed edges of society for 40 years, asking what we would be like if it all just blew away. And Flowers for Algernon, this month's featured sci-fi classic novel, questions just how much our personality is underpinned by our intelligence. But the really interesting thing is how these questions change over time. The questions sci-fi asks reflect the times in which it's written. Asimov's predicted future of androids and people living side by side just hasn't come to pass. Only a few companies are working on humanoid robots, mostly as curios. The robot dawn happened, of course, but they're all grabby arms in factories or simple software bots, force multipliers specialised to one task. AI is the current hot topic in science fiction, on display in Altered Carbon, the wargame Infinity, and nearly everywhere else. But is it obvious that sentient supercomputers will come to pass? We need computers to perform specific tasks. It's not clear that a computer that could park a car, play chess and appreciate jazz would be any more economically useful than a robot that looks like a human. This may sound lidetic, but consider this. We are nearly always wrong when it comes to predicting the future. Nothing dates like science fiction. The truth is that we can't foresee what we can't foresee. Arthur C. Clarke was right when he said that any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. But I don't think that's the point, ultimately. Science fiction isn't just about predicting the future. If it was, and we were better at it, the creators of all the works I've just mentioned would have become bookies, not writers. The real purpose of most science fiction is not to provide a telescope to the future, but a mirror to the present. To use time as distance to remove us from our present and allow us to look back at it critically. And this isn't a trait exclusive to sci-fi. Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels, revisited in this issue, are a towering masterpiece of withering satire. So, in this issue, we explore a plethora of prisms through which to examine our present, our society and ourselves. Nothing does this better than the fantastic. Mad Max, 40 years of George Miller's Road Warrior. The Mad Max films have seeped into popular culture in a way few franchises manage. 
but are still often overlooked. Their ultraviolence and moral ambiguity feel very modern, yet the first installment arrived back in 1979. Albert Einstein famously said, I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought, but World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. That Einstein himself was partly responsible for the invention of the atomic bomb, our most deadly, devastating weapon, merely embodies that we, as humans, are both brilliant and boneheaded all at once. There's an argument to be made that no film franchise embodies this mentality more than the Mad Max Quadrilogy. At over 40 years old, the dystopian, violent, disturbing future painted by George Miller's seminal Australian movies have become a byword for what post-apocalyptic has come to mean. It can be seen from everything like serious narratives in the Fallout games to more comical and farcical in Futurama, and even the Lego movie. From the terrifying and iconic aesthetics of semi-nude bikers causing mayhem and murder in the wilderness to the haunting sense of loneliness, the Mad Max universe, unlike so many other movies, has always captured the spirit of humanity's worst own end. And ultimately, our own destruction at our own expense. Ever since the first picture debuted to little fanfare in 1979, all the way up to 2015's highly regarded Fury Road, there's always been a great sense of self-reflection of who we are and, God forbid, where we're heading. We wrote backstories for not only all the characters, but every vehicle, every steering wheel. That gave it its texture. Miller's words taken from an interview with Vanity Fair in 2015 sum up the dedication and depth of his worlds. For those unfamiliar with the downright bonkers Mad Max movies, the plot is, on the surface, relatively simple. Max Rokotansky is a former road cop who, having lost his young family to a no-good biker gang, becomes a lonely crusader wandering the endless highways of the Australian wilderness trying to stay alive and bring a sense of justice back. The first three films of the quadrilogy, made up of 1979's Mad Max, its 1981 sequel Mad Max 2, and the third installment in 1985, Beyond Thunderdome, all-star Mel Gibson in the titular role. The 2015's sequel, Fury Road, sees Tom Hardy take on the lead role in a mixture of reimagining and continuation all at once. The world Max lives in is filled with strange characters that range from the downright ugly and mean to the more cryptic, mysterious, and sometimes silly. There are long car chases, high-octane fights between lorries and bikers, stirring storylines, subplots, and intrigue. And Tina Turner. Yeah, Tina Turner is a baddie in one of them. The cultural significance of the Mad Max movies has gone a little under the radar in recent years. Audience heading to the cineplexes in 2020 are very, very different from those who ventured out in 1979. Original storytelling, it could be argued, has been relegated in favor of bankable sequels, franchises, and stars who are guaranteed to bring in the big bucks. The irony, of course, is that Miller's movies are now in their fourth decade and fourth cinematic outing. Miller's struggles to get his Mad Max adventure made again 
are well documented. From using his friends and family and their various vehicles to the meager $300,000 to $400,000 budget, circumstances around the first film's inception were very different. Opening in April 1979, the grim picture from the unknown world of Oz would go on to rake in $100 million U.S. Praise for the movie was forthcoming, and it would be the director who took the lion's share of the plaudits. George Miller, a doctor and film buff making his first feature, shows he knows what cinema is all about, Variety wrote at the time. It would catapult then-relatively unknown Mel Gibson to a global audience. But more importantly, it paved the way and kicked down the door of the world for Australian cinema. The journey of our hero, Max, starts off in relative normalcy. Here is a character very, very different to the one we most recently saw wearing Tom Hardy's face. A loving family man. He's a cop who sticks by the rules in a society teetering on the edge of civilization. When his world is ripped from him, left for dead in the middle of some bleak, unknown, and strangely beautiful highway, he was killed too. The man we have grown to love over the course of the film is as dead as those he in turn loved. And in his place is a vengeful, dangerous, capable killing machine that strives to get even. It's not a coincidence that this transformation happens against the backdrop of the world it was released into. The James Bond movies are often credited as celluloid time capsules, embodiments of the eras and years in which they were made. Moonraker sees Moore's 007 head into space for a laser gun battle, 1979 being the height of the Star Wars sci-fi renaissance. But while Bond dons his disco-shimmering spacesuit, Max is getting mad. He's a downtrodden police officer who's fighting to preserve a system quickly crumbling around his ears. It's a vision of the future that reflects the time's global politics and economics much closer to home. By the time the sequel rolls around, the world that Max lives in is very different. Houses with front lawns and neat picket fences have been obliterated. Society has crumbled under the weight of war, and we're left scratching about in makeshift shanty towns made of old scrap iron and hollowed-out buses. I'm just here for the gasoline, Gibson mutters in one scene. The lone warrior stumbling across a pocket of society still clinging to the hope that if they try to stay humane to each other, then it'll be okay even if there's a sadomasochistic biker gang circling quite literally around their little haven. This is 1982, almost in a nutshell. The Cold War kept everyone awake at night. Most people felt that the button was never far from being pushed. Between 1981 and 1984, the fabled doomsday clock was switched from four minutes to three minutes to midnight signifying that society was, once again, prepared to destroy itself in a nuclear Armageddon. That Armageddon never came. Not in the 80s, at least. And while the core message of Mad Max 2 was one of, what have you done, there's still a sliver of hope that audiences can cling to in arguably Miller's finest work. Max helps the villagers escape, at his own cost, naturally and he's left to wander the roads again, by himself, 
eking out his existence, when nothing else seems to matter. The road warrior, like everyone else around the world, in that dangerous time, kept going. By the time Beyond Thunderdome was released in 1985, the franchise had become hot property, as had its star Gibson, who was fast becoming the go-to leading man in Hollywood. The tone of the third Mad Max movie is very different. The tragedy of producer Byron Kennedy's death while scouting for the movie hung heavily over the production. Miller shared directing duties with pal and collaborator George Ogilvie. In his own words, I had a lot on my plate. There were even doubts about the movie's entire production. The picture was made and opened on July 10th, and since that day has divided fandom and critics alike. Many can't decide if it's a high point or a low point for the franchise. Flashes of brilliance seem to sit uncomfortably along moments of pure Hollywood hogwash. And that was reflected in the box office, returning just $36.2 million in North America on its $10 million budget. Despite the turmoil behind the scenes, Beyond Thunderdome has still earned its own place in popular culture. Much of the action takes place in a town overseen by Tina Turner's perfectly pantomime auntie entity. She stomps on those who oppose her, dressing her tyranny up as being for the greater good. The people of Bartertown are led to believe they now live in what the future should be like, fair and equal. But it's a dictatorship, pure and simple. It all would sound familiar to a 1985 audience. In a world divided in two, quite literally between East and West, there are two opposing viewpoints towards economics and society. Consumerism is worshipped in the West by yuppies, while the ideals of communism make for harder times in the East. Beyond Thunderdome smashes the two together, a pastiche on both ideologies, thick with satire. Miller once again delivers a cracked mirror held up to society and offers a reflection, albeit fractured through the lens of science fiction. After Beyond Thunderdome, there would be a long absence from the Mad Max universe. Audience were teased and given false hope for almost 30 years. A number of mishaps, blunders, studio interference, and time meant that Mel Gibson had had his swan song. When Fury Road was released, it was Tom Hardy who wore the battered leather jacket and leg brace. He inherited the keys to the Pursuit Special, and boy did he take it for a ride. The world was a very different place. Three decades can do that to a planet. Yet somehow, when the vast opening shot of Fury Road appeared on the big screen, there was no sense of nostalgia. The world depicted felt fresh. Miller delivers in Fury Road a Mad Max movie built for the audience and time it occupies. The iconography is the same. We're still in the desert, still with our road warrior, still wanting him to succeed. Yet this world, this old, new, future world, has still somehow moved with our times. We're introduced to the fascist cult leader, Emerton Joe an aging man staving off death at all costs as he tries to secure his own legacy and future through oppressive masculinity and violence. Charlize Theron's Imperator Furiosa 
whose standout performance and character arc makes her arguably the co-lead, is the world-weary warrior trying to get the hell out of Dodge, taking the women destined to be slaves for their grotesque master with her. And into this strange setup comes Max. Hardy's portrayal of the character differs slightly to that of Gibson. Here we have a much more angst-riddled Max who battles his own demons more vocally than in previous installments. We live in a time of social upheaval, and that's reflected in Fury Road. The new, the future, races across a barren landscape potted and pitted with danger, both natural and man-made, in a bid to be free of the world it longs to leave behind. Max is the conduit through which this happens, and by the end of the picture, his job is done. He has no place in the new world. It's not for him. He was there merely to facilitate a future where there was none before. A powerful touching scene from Fury Road suggests that even in the chaos of the Mad Max universe, there is still a future. Bathed in a cool, calming blue hue from the desert night, one of the wives is shown seeds. It's not long, 30 seconds or thereabouts, but as a moment among the madness, it is profound and touching. Seeds represent the future. They are an investment in times yet to come. The four Mad Max films aren't just great fun. Though the car chases are amongst cinema's most thrilling, they're tight, brilliant films carrying prescient messages about ourselves, our instincts, and what happens when the chains are off. George Miller's films have always argued that we are our own worst enemy. And the road warrior and his world have become a dominant vision of what our world could become. They are a giant, glaring, neon sign pointing to a possible future, both of our world and of ourselves. Interview, Aliette de Baudard. Aliette is voiced by Jamie Sugar. Aliette de Baudard is a fantasy, science fiction and horror writer. She has won three Nebula Awards, a Locus Award, a European Science Fiction Society Award, a British Fantasy Award and four British Science Fiction Association Awards. She is the author of the Hugo Award-nominated science fiction series of stories The Universe of Zoya, as well as the Dominion of the Fallen series, which comprises The House of Shattered Wings, The House of Binding Thorns and The House of Sundering Flames. We caught up with her. Hi, Aliette. You have written both science fiction and fantasy genres. Which do you prefer and why? They're both equally fun to write. I think they both have a different appeal to me, and I enjoy merging both when I get the chance. Would you ever want to give up your job as a systems engineer to be a full-time writer? I don't think I would want to be a full-time writer. First, because writing income is so irregular, and second, because I quite enjoy my day job. It's a nice break from writing and vice versa. And it also provides social interaction I don't necessarily get as a writer. Does having a background in science and engineering make it easier or harder to write science fiction? A little bit of both, I think. When I started out, the engineering and science made it harder to write science fiction because I didn't feel quite free to make up things that wouldn't be 100% accurate, which can be quite confining. Now that I'm feeling more confident about how to handle this, I find my background in engineering and science has helped me find ideas, as well as make it easier to artfully suggest the science in the background of my stories. 
You have written a lot of short stories as well as novels. What are the advantages and disadvantages for you as an author for the different lengths of work? I think they're quite different beasts. The short story is something that doesn't take much time to write and can be wrapped up fairly quickly. It also can be more experimental and relies a lot more on the punch of the ending. Whereas the novel is more like a marathon. It's a few months of continuous investment in slow and steady writing. And it can have more complex world building, more complex plot, more complex characters. Basically more space in general. What are you currently working on or have in the pipeline? Can you give us any details or hints? I just finished a novella set in a world inspired by Vietnam in the age of commerce, and I'm now starting work on my next novel, which will be a space opera setting my recurring Shuya universe on the fringes of the Confucian Galactic Empire. What are you reading right now? Do you have a particular area of fiction you enjoy? I recently got back into reading after a fallow period. I'm enjoying an advanced reader's copy of Kate Elliott's Unconquered Son, a retelling of Alexander the Great in space where she's a woman. And prior to that, I got a chance to read Martha Wells' upcoming Network Effect, which was great. I generally read very electically, mostly in science fiction and fantasy, but not only. You have won a number of awards and been nominated for even more. What is your proudest literary achievement and why? Oh, that's a tough one. If I had to pick one, it was my first nebula. It was so much of a shock, I panicked and couldn't find my speech. I finally located it. What changes have you seen in the publishing industry and what changes would you like to see? The one I'm happiest with is the growing diversity of authors who've been publishing really fabulous books. Previously, it was hard to see any big five imprint publishing these, and I'm glad the conversation has shifted. Like any changes, they've been very slow, and I also worry this remains a fragile gain, as marginalised authors are overwhelmingly the ones hurt when controversy happens. Your website says you will gladly use any excuse to shoehorn Vietnamese history and culture into your fiction. Can you share a little about why this is important to you? Well, I'm of Vietnamese descent, so I feel very strongly about putting my maternal culture into my fiction. Would you recommend joining a writing group to others? I would definitely recommend joining a writing group, as I found having a group who critiques one's work to be invaluable. More broadly, I think having a writing support network is essential to writer survival. What advice would you give to new writers starting in their careers? Read widely. Read not in your genre. You often comment on your love of real ink pens. Do you ever use them in your work or is it all digital? Which is your favourite pen? I actually do all of my brainstorming by hand. I found it helps to have a different medium to work in. It jogs some different pathways in the brain. My favourite pen is a hard question. I think currently it's a Platinum 3776 Burgundy, which puts down a really fine nib. I have it permanently inked with Sailor Rick Uchar, which is a fascinating ink that goes down green and dries brown with red shading, and is pretty much amazing. You love cooking and have a number of recipes on your blog. Do you have a sweet tooth, or do you prefer savoury? And what is your favourite recipe? I am not at all a sweet tooth person. Okay, okay, brownies are an exception. I much prefer savoury foods. My favourite recipe varies a lot depending on how I'm feeling, but I quite like this recipe for steamed buns. Black sesame steamed buns are the best. What board games do you love? I've been out of the board game thing for quite a bit. I really enjoy Shadowhunters, which is a fast-paced game of hidden identities, copes with a lot of players and doesn't outstay its welcome. What TV or films do you enjoy? I watch a lot of different things. 
Currently I'm on the Dragon Prince, Castle, Picard and the Expanse, and I'm stealing myself to start watching The Untamed again. It's a Shan Chia C drama about cultivators on Netflix that got rather intense, and I needed a break from all the grim things happening on stage to people. Thanks for your time, and good luck with your current space opera. We look forward to reading it. Cheap Thrills. The value of video games. Video games are slowly clawing their way to general respectability, although most people's parents will still look at you quizzically if you're over 30 and tell them that you play games. But we think that they are the greatest value form of entertainment the world has ever seen, as well as being a tremendous social good and hotbed of artistic creativity. Thomas Turnbull Ross explains why. League of Legends is famed for being the most streamed game on Twitch. It also weighs in at third place in terms of monthly active player count, with around 115 million players. Released in late 2009, Riot Games' genre-defying multiplayer online battle arena, or MOBA, is still drawing both attention and players whilst also being free to play. Considering the amount of time many of these millions of players will have invested in the game since they picked it up, it is easy to conclude that League of Legends is one of the single best value forms of entertainment ever created. Even disregarding the annual Steam sales and the prevalence of free-to-play games, many video games offer up to or above 100 hours of playable content, with dedicated fans often sinking thousands of hours into a single game. In many cases, even the most expensive of games can, in terms of pounds spent per hour, cost less than the electricity used to play them. Over the last few decades, more forms of entertainment than ever have been available for public consumption, from television to theatre to board games, but none have provided as much audience agency as video games. In a book or a film, the actions of the characters are fixed. No matter how many times an audience reads or watches them, the plot and scenes will always be the same. The film A New Hope always ends with the Death Star exploding and the cheesy metal scene. In a video game, however, the player can change and influence the story by their own actions, leading to a very different experience each time a game is played. These player-guided storytelling methods are, in some ways, similar to classic tabletop role-playing games such as Dungeons & Dragons, and are indeed influenced by them. This type of storytelling is a primary component in Arcane Studios' 2012 game Dishonored, Don't Nod's Entertainment's 2015 game Life is Strange, and many titles from Telltale games. In such games, choices are often presented which directly influence later events, usually in a binary manner, do one thing or another, but sometimes with more complexity, such as choosing to poison both, one, or neither of the glasses of wine in the second mission of Dishonored. While this idea of allowing the audience to shape the story harkens back to choose-your-own-adventure books like Jackson and Livingston's classic fighting fantasy series, video games can implement such choices more subtly. For instance, the decision in Dishonored about poisoning the glasses can lead to the presence or absence of Campbell and his diary five missions later. While such long-lasting consequences have been used in the fighting fantasy series with the codeword system in Stormslayer and Knight of the Necromancer, a certain element of surprise is lost when doing so, since the reader knows a choice where the lasting impact has been made. In a video game, choices are not always obvious to the player, and their consequences even less so. 
In addition to agency, video games also provide a unique level of immersion by placing the player directly in the shoes of the protagonist, literally viewing the world through their eyes. In video games, players are brought that much closer to the characters and their story, no longer an outside observer simply controlling pieces on a board, but an active participant. The player can become the character, encouraging them to become emotionally invested in the character's struggles and friendships. However, it's not just these twin elements of immersion and agency that set video games apart. In terms of raw storytelling, video games are arguably the vehicles for the most original and compelling stories being told today. It is often said that we're living through a golden age of television, with more hours of world-class series than any person could hope to watch. But we would argue that it is video games that are truly the most fervent hotbeds of creativity, and that the stories they tell can be at least as nuanced and captivating as those in films or books. Some are trite, it's true, but the same is true of any media. The tragic and philosophical Bioshock series, made by 2K Games and released between 2007 and 2014, and Quantic Dream's thoughtful Detroit Become Human, released in 2018, are great examples out of many I could have plucked. Both are hailed for their outstanding storytelling, made possible only by their interactivity. Multiplayer games have arguably even greater replay value than single-player ones, due to social as much as artistic aspects. Massively multiplayer online, or MMO, games use social elements as a key part of their structure. From four-player teams hunting titanic eidolons in the 2013 game Warframe, to the 40-strong raid parties of Blizzard Entertainment's World of Warcraft. By making late-game challenges impossible to complete alone, such games actively encourage players to seek out squadmates. They enable this through systems such as clans, player-led organisations within the game that share resources and knowledge. Many clans have become akin to online communities, bringing together players from across the world to enjoy a game they all love together. Some clans even develop friendly rivalries with each other, such as how experienced clans in World of Warcraft compete to be the first to finish new raids when they are released. The friendships made in these settings might be dismissed as superficial, but can last easily as long as those forged in the real world, and can be a source of no lesser value and pleasure. Many multiplayer games offer features for players to create temporary parties to ensure they play together, and free services such as Discord and Steam facilitate this by offering voice and text chat services over the internet. Discord in particular has proven a phenomenal platform to enable socialising with people from all over the world, instantly and for free. One of my closest friends was introduced to me via Discord, and I didn't meet him in person until about three years later. Meanwhile, I'm still able to keep in contact with another friend after he moved abroad, and the three of us commonly play with and against each other in a variety of online games. This isn't some kind of superficial imitation of socialising. These are real friends, having real fun, more cheaply and healthily than going to the pub. Going further than close groups of friends, many professional gamers set up their own public Discord servers where fans from across the world can socialise. The professionals also commonly broadcast themselves playing games through streaming services such as Twitch and will often react to and engage with their audience as they play in a way that the host of even a live TV show isn't capable of. The most popular streamers receive tens of thousands of viewers when they stream, all of whom are able to watch entirely free of charge. In this way, a single person buying a game can provide hours upon hours of entertainment for millions of people across the world, for free. Even when buying and playing a game just for oneself, there isn't usually all that large a price tag attached. 
While it is true that some games can be expensive, with new titles often releasing at anything up to £50, the amount of playtime and entertainment one can gain is markedly higher than with other media. A cinema ticket usually costs around £10, varying based on region and other factors, and gives admission to one film, usually around two hours long, once. Team Cherry's 2017 game, Hollow Knight, costs around the same, £10.99 on Steam at the date of writing, and on my first playthrough it took around 30 hours to finish the game. I've since completed the game at least twice more. In total, I've spent 145 hours playing Hollow Knight, and there are still parts of the game I have yet to experience. All for the price of a cinema ticket. Even when optional downloadable content, or DLC, is accounted for, the cost of video games is still fiercely competitive with other media. This is particularly true in games like Amplitude Studios' 2014 strategy title Endless Legend, where only one player needs to have purchased a copy of the DLC to let an entire lobby's worth of eight players experience it. This is obviously very good value for a group of close friends, but public lobbies can also be created, and it is common to find players willing to share DLC they have bought with anyone who wants to try it out. As most online games also have their own internet forums, these impromptu gatherings of random players to enjoy DLC together are surprisingly easy to organise. Of course, the amount of time-to-money value video games can provide is most obvious in those games that are free-to-play. While such games often have in-game microtransactions, most, if not all, of the gameplay can usually be experienced without paying a single penny. In Valve's 2007 shooter Team Fortress 2, every playable character and game mode is available from the moment it is first installed. The alternative weapons which the characters can use are acquired at random or by completing certain challenges. In fact, the only thing a player need ever pay for are cosmetic items to alter their character's appearance. And even then, there are free cosmetic items given out during seasonal events. There are egregious examples of predatory practices. Electronic Arts' 2017 game Star Wars Battlefront 2 found itself at the centre of the largest controversy in gaming in recent years, over monetization practices perceived to be unsettlingly close to gambling. The monetization models of some free-to-play games can certainly be off-putting, and the area is something of a regulatory no-man's land at present. But we would argue that there is also a generous slug of old-fashioned moralizing in the conversation as well, of the kind that accompanied paperback novels and Hollywood films early in their respective developments. Bad actors do not make a bad industry. But many video games that cost in the region of £30 can give us hundreds of hours of pleasure and original storytelling, alone or with friends, from the comfort of home. No form of entertainment comes close to that, past or present. Compare this to board games, some of which easily cost £100, or war games which are famously a money sink. Some people have over a thousand video games in their Steam library, most, thanks to regular Steam sales and offerings like the Humble Bundle, having cost them around £10. It is common to hear people lament the little time they've spent in a world-class game, simply through lack of time and too much choice. In all these ways, video games are the best value entertainment in the world. Games have never been better than they are today, nor more varied and interesting, despite some pernicious trends in the industry. Whether through rich and unique storytelling methods designed to completely immerse the player in the plot and grant them unprecedented levels of agency, or through sharing the experience of playing a game with friends or a wider internet audience, the generosity of video games as a medium is unequalled.
Games Masterclass. Assembling the cast. At their centre, most role-playing campaigns are about a story. Some may focus more on the combat mechanics or exploring a particular setting, but the action will generate story. And the most important part of any story are the characters, because without characters, there can't be conflict. For those games that are heavily focused on combat, this may be simple. Just roll some stats and pick a class. The character is just an extension of the player's will, but even here, where a distinct personality and history aren't required, there are still some things to consider, such as party balance. A party of bards may make an interesting experiment, but it might not be the most effective, assuming that's a consideration, of course. In fact, there are two elements to creating characters that run parallel. There's character creation and party creation. You may be familiar with spending a lot of time on the first, and the second simply emerges from that. Similarly, many players simply take the book away and return with their character. There can be advantages to this approach. You can end up with an organic party, and it keeps some mystery about your character from other players. If you're going to play in a game heavily focused on player-versus-player conflict, this may be quite important, as you may not want others to know everything that your character can do. Even without that aspect, some surprise in backstory can make for fun and interesting revelations during the game. However, I would argue that it's better to start with the creation of the party and then create the characters, reversing the more traditional method. I've mentioned already the idea that you want to maintain an effective party balance in a more combat-focused game, but this idea of balance in the party extends to more narrative aspects as well. From a mechanical perspective, unless you're deliberately running a game aiming to subvert the concept like the example of an all-barred party mentioned earlier, then you want every character to be able to do different things. Think of the party like being a crew from a heist story. Each character has their own niche or expertise that they bring to the team. In fact, they're often hired specifically for that expertise. While a little overlap can be a benefit, the heist analogy is a useful guide. Players need to ensure that all the necessary roles are fulfilled in the party, and that there isn't too much similarity. Of these, the second is the more important. Normally, missing out on some skills or abilities just means you have to play a little differently. A party without a dedicated healer may need to find other ways to get themselves going after a fight, or one without a hacker may need to hire a non-player character to do some work for them. However, too much overlap inevitably leads to a lack of spotlight for some players, which can be frustrating for them. Spotlight, also sometimes referred to as screen time, means that each character needs to have a chance to contribute to the story. A skilled games master can make this work even if there's significant overlap between the character's abilities, but it's much easier if each character has their own niche. The idea is that it doesn't matter how powerful one character is compared to another if they both get the same amount of spotlight and opportunity to affect the story. This is what creates many of the arguments you'll see about game balance. 
To take an example from Dungeons and Dragons, wizards are often considered unbalanced. Why? Is it because they have special powers that others don't? Not really, although this feeds into it. Because they can do more damage in a fight? Perhaps, but not entirely. It's because they can do it all. They can throw out more damage than the fighter, get around traps better than the rogue, and solve problems that nobody else can outside the dungeon as well. Handled badly, they're likely to get far more spotlight than the other characters. Spotlight is important beyond mechanics. It also feeds into the more narrative parts of the wider campaign story, and so is important right from the character and party creation, because a story-based campaign will consider a character's background, description and personality, as well as what they can do. It's all very well having each character have different skills. But if, for example, none of the characters comes from a noble background, that may limit options in how players interact with the story. At the same time, if everybody's a noble, nobody gets a chance to shine during the ball, where their refined upbringing really counts. Again, the second problem is bigger than the first. If you have no nobles, Perhaps you must steal invitations and sneak in, which could be a fun story itself. The lack can be worked around. But if everyone can do it, you end up with one or two people leading and the other players watching. However, if you have a party of a couple of nobles and some servants, that may open out the opportunities for everybody to do their own thing and have an awesome moment, or it may split the party. It depends on your story and playstyle. Naturally, sometimes the theme of the game will be at odds with this advice. Perhaps the concept that the group has come up with for the campaign is a bunch of nobles who are trying to make their own way in the world. If so, fair enough, that sounds fun. However, for those aspects that are locked down and constant, you need to find other ways to differentiate. Perhaps the characters come from different nations or cultures, or each has a different attitude to various insetting issues. Speaking of attitudes, there are some elements of this that the group should discuss together, because if a player unexpectedly ends up being the only one who would prefer bloodless solutions in a party that otherwise doesn't care about the body count, that can spoil the fun. Of course, some players will love this tension. There are very few hard and fast rules. To return to Dungeons and Dragons, a paladin isn't going to fit into a mostly chaotic evil party. That's unlikely to be fun for anybody. Further to this, ideally each character will have a reason to want to be in the party. And whilst the games master can be involved in planning this, the responsibility shouldn't entirely rest there. You should discourage your players from planning a character who doesn't want to be in the party. At least, not without a plan for this to change. It might be fun for a few sessions to be the pirate that's afraid of water and gets seasick... But if they're always looking for an excuse to leave the crew, that's going to get old very fast. It's wonderful if these reasons for being in the party involve the other characters. Perhaps they're all members of the same family, or old friends that have been together for a long time. Alternatively, there's nothing wrong with an external impetus to remain together. Perhaps all the characters are criminals, being forced to work together to avoid a death sentence. However, each player should be willing to buy into whatever concept the group comes up with, or at the very least have their own reason for sticking with the party and plan their character accordingly. 
Some might call this metagaming, to design a character or make decisions based on out-of-character considerations. Personally, I feel that metagaming as a concept is criticised far more than it deserves. There are obviously areas where it can be a problem, such as using information you gleaned from reading a source book that there's no way your character could know. But when it makes for a more enjoyable game for everyone playing, then I've never seen the harm. Creating a good, well-balanced party is a more important consideration than concerns about individual characters, and doing so doesn't stop each player from creating an interesting and deep character. However, doing this in reverse may not work. Once players have put some effort into creating their character, many are reluctant to change, or are disappointed at the need to. So party creation, then, must be a group activity. Some games insist on this as part of the character creation anyway. Spirit of the Century, for example, requires each player to come up with a narrative link which informs a mechanical choice to two other characters as part of the character creation. I think this is great, and it's one of the best character creation systems I've come across. Whilst you don't necessarily get a coherent party out of it automatically, you at least get characters that know and hopefully care about each other. Other systems don't, and their character creation rules may be so complex that it makes it very difficult to do as a group, or as Magicka and Anima come to mind. There are so many decisions to make and so many options to look through that you need several copies of each book and a lot of time to try and create characters together. Remember as well that some players may simply prefer to be able to take their time and don't like the pressure of making character decisions with an audience. This isn't ideal, But if you recognise that this is the case for one of your players, the worst thing you can do is pressure them into making those decisions anyway. Depending on the game, you may need to reschedule after giving them a chance to think about it more, or perhaps hold a solo character creation session for them, in which you can act as proxy for the rest of the group. However, even if you don't iron out every detail, such as exact numbers to write on character sheets, it's still worth doing the bulk of character design work as a group. You can work on game themes and discuss character attitudes and tolerances without needing to read the list of advantages available. Similarly, you can talk about areas of expertise without knowing exactly what level you can afford of each skill in the game. If the characters know each other well, they should have an idea of what they can each do. To me, the more you can do together as a group, the better, and as the game goes on, it becomes even more important. Because character creation doesn't stop when the campaign starts. Most games involve character progression, and this can, and I think should, also be done as a group. A player doesn't know what feet to buy. Perhaps the person next to them has an idea that would fit how they've started to take their character. They're not sure which skill to improve. If somebody else has the same quandary, they can pick different things. You may also find that a character doesn't work. Best laid plans and all that. Maybe they don't fit as well as you thought, or they just aren't fun when you get to playing. Again, the group can help. Perhaps they can suggest the change that sparks the imagination and makes it fun again, or they can warn the group off an idea that the player thinks will work but might spoil things in a different way. Even if it means changing character completely, it helps to ensure that the new character is somebody they want to hang around with. 
And that really is the whole point. Not only does each character need a reason to stay in the party, but there ought to be a reason for the rest of the party to want them around. And that's easier to achieve as a group. Book Review Million Eyes Time travel fiction is of a particular flavour that doesn't always fit neatly into a specific genre. For sure, it's speculative fiction. But is it sci-fi? Historical fantasy? How about a dash of conspiracy thriller? Million Eyes by C.R. Berry includes all of the above in this new novel from a young author. I shan't be long, says King Edward II of England on the first page of this book. Shan't. What a lovely word. It has, unfortunately, fallen into disuse as part of what we call the archaic English language, and so here serves as a marker of a different tongue, a different time. Anyone who uses the word shan't surely isn't from our millennium. Of course, no one would have used the word shan't in England in the year 1100 either, as the country's language was shifting between Old and Middle English through the medium of Anglo-Norman. Edward himself hardly recognises any of the modern English words on the title of a mysterious tome he carries, the history of computer-aided timetabling for railway systems. Still, words like shan't, like regressive social norms and alien perspectives on divinity, are excellent markers to make a scene feel like it took place long ago. The feel of a time is particularly important to stories that take place in decades or centuries past. That's why period movies spend millions of dollars on antiquated clothing to create the feeling that we are revisiting a time long past. It's why Captain Marvel highlighted blockbuster stores and pages, taking us back to the oh-so-simple era of the 90s. Of course, in written works, we don't have the advantage of letting the sight of frock coats or pages place us in a particular time period, so it's vital that the writer of a time travel story be able to capture a vernacular or a mood or a societal infrastructure that feels like it comes from the time period in question. And Berry proves adept at this. As our perspective jumps around to various times throughout the second millennium, we feel as if we're stepping backwards to a time when things were intangibly, almost imperceptibly, different. Then, once we get back to the 21st century, there's nothing to make us feel like we're back in the present day like the word fuck. Time travellers should always cuss. It's science. According to an interview with Time Travel Nexus, Berry draws inspiration for these elements from Star Trek, which pioneered certain tropes of time travel and brought it into the mainstream. His fascination with the concept shows in his writing and use of popular tropes. What's going on in this timeline? Someone check Wikipedia. It's all fantastic, but believable and consistent at the same time. As pivotal moments in history shift, the world starts to become more and more... off. Offering a disorienting but enthralling experience. We won't spoil some of the more delectable twists here, but it gets... interesting. For all the thrill that comes from manipulating timelines and confronting grandfather paradoxes, though, time travel is merely a backdrop to the centric draw of the novel. Conspiracy thrills. The book focuses on the efforts of a pair of modern-day innocents who stumble across a horrifying truth, that history as we know it is a perversion of its natural course. Drawing on the power of conspiracy thrillers like The Da Vinci Code, Berry throws his two victims, a university grad named Jennifer Larson and a history teacher called Gregory Farrow, into a disturbing web of danger. Before long, they've uncovered that the assassination of Princess Di, among other historical twists and turns, was the work of time travellers, and were off to the races as those temporal manipulators hurry to silence them. 
knowing that we humans have an ancestral fear of being watched by something we can't see, makes the terrors these two heroes face even more horrid. As the titular Million Eyes Corporation is constantly watching through the massive network of technology built up through consumer goods production. It's like something out of Orwell's 1984. Or real life, actually. That terror is brought to the UK as Larson and Ferro have to fight for more than just their survival, but to track down this story's MacGuffin, a mysterious textbook. But this MacGuffin moves through time as well as space, making it all the more dangerous and difficult to find. As their efforts progress, Larson and Ferro demonstrate one of the most important elements of character work, believable and genuine conflict, as conflicting priorities drive them apart. Million Eyes is the first in a trilogy, and to that end is in large part set up for what comes next, or before, or at the same time. Who can say? At any rate, Berry does the necessary work to build his world and set the stage for future adventures set in it, with clearly understandable stakes and forward momentum. He does a decent job of doing that setup in interesting ways, although does take us a little too far into the weeds at some points. His characters, including a number of historical figures brought to life by their proximity to historical pivoting points, are believable and real. His writing is clear and easy to understand, even as the world twists and turns. Million Eyes is a strong start. One of its most notable missions to a reader today is the lack of any reference to COVID-19 and its impact. Although, that might be explained in-universe by the so-called butterfly effect and the impact of its historical changes on the story's world. It's most obviously not included in the present and near-future time of the story, because the coronavirus was not yet present in the news cycle when Berry wrote the book. It'll be interesting to see if and how he incorporates this new twist in our planet's history in future volumes of the trilogy. Still, if you're looking for an escape from current events, and can handle the disorienting effects of the fractured fictional alternate timelines, Million Eyes is an excellent read. Infinite Possibilities Corvus Belli's Infinity This month, we get to grips with an excellent skirmish war game. It's not really much of a secret that this writer has a great love of miniatures games. I started out, as most do, with Games Workshop's Warhammer 40,000 when I was a kid, and I played pretty much every Games Workshop game that they released. But as I got older, my tastes changed. I like to think that I grew up and outgrew the buckets of dice, clunky mechanics and heroically misproportioned sculpts. I collected and played through a number of war games produced by various companies, but those are stories for another time. Eventually I stumbled upon a little-known Spanish war game, Corvus Belli's Infinity. I was immediately captivated by the miniature sculpts, but for many years those models sat on my shelf in their blister packs because I feared that I couldn't do them justice with my limited painting ability. Eventually, I did pluck up the courage. Infinity is a skirmish-scale war game, usually played on a 4x4 tabletop and with limited 8-16 models per side. Unlike many war games, terrain is dense and usually urban, representing street fights and covert limited-scale operations. Achieving objectives is usually of more importance than massacring the enemy. At the time, Infinity was little more than a few pages of poorly translated rules in a little pamphlet that came with the boxed miniatures. It was intriguing because it so obviously hadn't come out of the game's workshop mould. The game mechanics were based on 20-sided dice, not the typical six-sided dice that so many other games used. You could activate a miniature more than once per turn using the order system, and best of all, it was always your turn, 
Which is to say, you had to be vigilant on your opponent's turn, because if he crossed the line of fire of one of your models, you stood a good chance of taking him out. The mantra of Infinity players is, move on your turn, kill on your opponent's. The game has evolved a lot over the years. The original pamphlet first edition, dubbed N1, gave way to a full-colour hardback book known as N2. The second edition was more about cleaning up and improving the translation than anything else. The models at this point were very much inspired by Japanese manga, which was part of the aesthetic that attracted me to the game in the first place. Quite a few of the sculpts depicted female soldiers, and while some were clothed in full-body armour, there were many cheesecake poses, wearing crop tops and miniskirts. Fortunately, this is something that has improved with the advent of digital sculpting, and most, but not all, of these models have been retired and replaced with more modern, better proportioned and properly equipped soldiers for the battlefield. Infinity is set about 150 years into the future, and mankind is as balkanised as ever. The main political power blocks have reached the stars and settled several systems through a series of naturally occurring wormholes that need to be forced opened and maintained by complex technology. The biggest political block is the hyperpower Pan-Oceana, essentially a political union that encompasses most of Western civilization. Its principal rival is the Yu Jing, a union of the Asian states under a resurgent China. The third great power is the Huk Islam, a unified Islamic state encompassing the Middle Eastern countries. All three of these powers are represented in a United Nations-like body called the O-12. There are two further human powers outside of the O-12. The nomad nations are based on huge starships that ply the spaceways. They reject the power of the O-12 and specifically the benign AI that runs the human sphere on its behalf. Then there's the rediscovered colony of Ariadna, Tough, low-tech survivors, descended from a mixture of Kazakhs, Scots, French and Americans. They operate their own territorial claims on the harsh frontier world of Dawn. Set against the human sphere is the Great Enemy. The combined army are the vanguard of an alien cooperative, ruled over by the evolved intelligence, an alien AI. First contact did not go well. The evolved intelligence has subjected, co-opted, and even eradicated other alien civilization, and has now conquered humans. Over time, principal armies of the powers have been broken down into sectorial, themed sub-armies to give greater flavour and the variety of forces you can deploy in an Infinity game. Additional factions and sectorials have been added along the way. The third edition, N3, overhauled many of the rules, mostly for hand-to-hand combat which is rare in Infinity. Most importantly, the hacking rules were rebuilt. Hacking is Infinity's magic system, allowing the deployment of tactical hackers who can disrupt communications and take out high-tech weapon systems, like the mighty TAGs, tactical armoured gear or mech suits. Infinity's world changes. Most of the story of N1 focused on the conflict between human factions, territorial control and political sabre-rattling, with the alien conflict on the fringes. N2 saw the first hints that Corvus Belli were prepared to make radical changes to the story. A seemingly minor backstory concerning a Yu Jing special character, Tiger Soldier Kodali, saw her listed as missing in action, presumed dead. Her character was removed from the army builder and was no longer playable. On the surface, this could have been the company rebalancing an unbalanced character, but it wasn't. The current edition of the rules is now N3 and has a number of supplements that have inched the storyline forward over the past few years. 
The big change for N3 was a massive clean-up and a concerted effort to get the English translation right, to tap into the UK and America markets. This went hand-in-hand with the early release of a special army box, US Ariadna, that saw the development of the American Sectorial Army as part of the larger Ariadna force. Naturally, the appearance of this US Ranger-style force went down very well in the USA and helped springboard the game to a new audience. Then came the reintroduction of Kodali. She didn't fight for the Yujing anymore. She was fighting for the evolved intelligence on the side of the aliens. Up to this point, only the human factions had had named special characters. Kodali represented the first of the combined army special characters fighting against her former masters. The first supplement for N3, Human Sphere, introduced new factions to the game. Aleph, the forces of the human AI, took to the field to combat the combined army assault on the world of Paradiso. The Aleph forces were spearheaded by the Homeric Greek-styled steel phalanx, artificial AI humans designed to be recreations of the Greek heroes of old, led by an AI recreation of the legendary warrior Achilles. They were designed to inspire humanity to unify and fight together as a single race against the invading combined army. A second alien faction was also introduced, the Toha. Masters of bioengineering, the Toha have long been engaged in a bitter struggle with the combined army, and it remains to be seen whether the old adage the enemy of my enemy is my friend will hold true here. The Toha have a longer hidden backstory, interfering with human colonial efforts and pulling strings behind the scenes. The Uprising supplement cast the human sphere into greater political turmoil and infighting as the Japanese state, long subsumed into Yujing, fought its way free to become its own independent nation. This book also introduced many themed mercenary forces and greatly weakened the economical and political power of the Yujing. This represents the second major upheaval in the world of infinity. The third offensive supplement brought the focus back to the Paradiso front, as the combined army pushed through the human defences like a lawnmower through a flock of overfed pigeons. Only now do we start to see the capability of the alien forces. What the humans believed to have been a full-scale invasion of Paradiso in the first and second defences was nothing more than a recon in force and probing assault, respectively. The third offensive was the establishment of the beachhead. It is starting to dawn on the human sphere just what is coming. The Daedalus Fall supplement explores more about the relationship between the human sphere and the alien Toha. The Daedalus wormhole that connects Paradiso to the Toha homeworlds is sabotaged, cutting off the Toha forces in Paradiso from reinforcement and resupply. But was this the actions of the combined army or of the Toha themselves? Now humanity stands on the edge of a precipice. The combined army prepares to launch a full-scale invasion of the human sphere through the Archeon wormhole in the Paradiso system. Corvus Belli are, at the time of writing, finalising their recent and first Kickstarter campaign. Infinity Defiance will be a dungeon-crawler board game that tracks the fate of a few key heroes and their ship, the Defiance, as it embarks on a suicide mission to cut the Combined Army's supply lines through the Archean wormhole. This is a one-way mission. The ship and its crew will not be coming back. The rumour is that Corvus Belli will be releasing N4 later this year, and I believe we will see substantial evolution of the Infinity story as a result of Infinity Defiance. Clearly, I love the backstory of Infinity, but while this is a major selling point for the game, 
The miniatures are the best quality sci-fi models you will find anywhere. They have character and are properly equipped for their role on the battlefield, most being in full body armour. Human troops don't go alone onto the tabletop. They are supported by hackers and remotes, semi-autonomous robots that bring fire support or simply act as a baggage train. Then there are the tags, whose massive all-metal models are brilliantly assembled. In game terms, they offer considerable firepower, but you had better protect them, or an enemy hacker will take them offline, or worse, override them and use them against you. Although massive battles do occur in the Infinity World, they are not the focus of the game. Instead, the game focuses on small-scale skirmish, tactical and covert operations. Hitting the objective and getting out is, more often than not, the preferred way to win a scenario. There are a few alternative mission systems for Infinity, but most of these are fan-made. Corvus Belli produce a classified objectives deck that allows players to have random primary and secondary objectives that only they know. Your opponent might be able to guess what you're up to, but only you can know for certain. You also don't need to spend a fortune on books to play. In fact, all the game system material is available as downloadable PDFs, so if you have models from other games you can proxy and try out the rules at no cost though you may need to buy a few 20-sided dice if you don't have any. There is an excellent army builder that cross-links to the wiki to help resolve any rules questions. Of course you will want to buy the books eventually, they are full of lovely artwork and interesting backstory, but you don't need them to play. There are several introductory box sets available that are excellent value. Simply choose the one whose forces interest you. They come with a quick-start version of the rules, that progressively introduces the concepts of the game through a series of linked missions. Each comes with two starter forces that are an excellent foundation to expand your collection of models from. Each box comes with cardboard buildings and a poster-sized playmat. It can really help to have an experienced player teach you the basics, but don't be disheartened if you don't win a game against them. Infinity rewards player experience and tactical planning. More than any other game I've played, you need to hit the table with a solid plan, Know how your models will work together and support each other. Like all games based on dice, sometimes luck is just not on your side, but more often than not, the better player can still pull out a win by completing objectives over simply gunning the enemy down. Find out more at www.infinitythegame.com Uzumaki, The Strange Horror of Junji Ito This month, we're going to explore a masterclass in horror manga. Be warned, this article contains mild spoilers. Manga artist Junji Ito's work has been favorably compared to H.P. Lovecraft by some reviewers. And although the styles and subject matter differ greatly, both are renowned for works of original horror that seem to have a unique and disturbing flavor that stands them apart from their contemporaries. Ito has created many works of horror manga. Most well-known here in the West are The Enigma of Amigara Fault, Tomi, Gio, and Uzumaki. According to director Guillermo del Toro, Junji Ito was originally working with del Toro and game designer Hideo Kojima on the much-anticipated horror video game Silent Hills. Unfortunately, only the critically acclaimed teaser game, P.T., was actually made, and was downloaded over a million times before the project was cancelled when Kojima split with Konami. Both Ito and Del Toro 
have cameos in Kojima's 2019 game Death Stranding, which shows how respected Ito is amongst his peers. Uzumaki, literally meaning spiral or swirl, was originally published in parts in manga magazine Big Comic Spirits from 1998 to 1999. As such, each chapter of the complete Uzumaki book can be read to varying degrees as a standalone short that also follows the continuity of the overall narrative. Uzumaki takes place in the town of Kurozucho, which is a picturesque, isolated, fictional Japanese town. Generally speaking, each chapter is a unique manifestation of the spiral curse of Kurozucho. However, as the story progresses, it incorporates many elements from earlier parts into later chapters, as the events unfold and build towards the climax. As much as there can be considered protagonist in Uzumaki, Kirigoshima and her boyfriend, Suichi Saito, are our windows into the events as they transpire. When the story begins, Suichi already seems to understand what's happening, and through him we learn that the town has become contaminated with spirals. Like much good horror, Uzumaki's core is a very simple, albeit preposterous, concept, which Ito leans heavily into, feeling out the extremes of what an obsession with spirals might actually mean when taken to its ultimate conclusion. A lot of Japanese horror has a spiritual or supernatural element to it, and Uzumaki makes no apologies for the general idea that there is some type of non-specific curse causing all the strange events. It quickly becomes apparent that even the fabric of reality itself seems obsessed with spirals, and even natural phenomena like winds and water begin to take on spiral forms. In an extra chapter at the end of the book, Ito presents a fictionalized account of how he researched Uzumaki. I attempted to find an answer to the secrets of this enigmatic shape. He goes on to study spirals, eat spiral food, read books on spirals, and finally goes to visit a mad hermit who offers to reveal the secret of spiral if Ito presents him with more spiral food to eat. Unlike many Western horror stories, as well as much of the rest of Ito's work, Uzumaki doesn't really follow a protagonist as they battle, escape, and defeat the horror. Instead, the focus is on the spectacle of the horror itself. The protagonist exists mainly to give us eyes on events as they transpire. And it's notable that neither Kiri or Suichi actually try to really do anything about the curse. In fact, pretty much all of the characters we encounter in Uzumaki just accept what's happening and try to survive it. Which is tricky, as the curse itself seems to strike somewhat randomly. Although sometimes it also seems to bestow some very specific punishments and even some blessings on certain characters. Overall, there's a sense that the curse isn't entirely without some unknowable motivation. And this is perhaps where the similarity with Lovecraft's cosmicism comes through the most. There's an underlying feeling that there are vast forces at work beyond the comprehension of any mere mortal. The lack of any specific rules to the spiral curse actually really adds to the feeling that there's no way to beat it. In most horror, at some stage, someone, usually a wise elderly foreigner, 
is able to give the main character some neat exposition on exactly what's going on, which often lays out a series of conditions by which the protagonist can at least make it to the end of the story. Not so with Uzumaki. Everyone seems pretty well clued in, at least after the first few chapters, that the town is cursed by spirals. Yet they can't seem to figure out what to do about it. It's remarkable how long the townsfolk actually just go about their normal business despite all the strange things happening. The capricious nature of the curse means that some characters seem to become infected in a very directed way, which almost feels like a punishment for moral transgressions. Those affected to lesser degrees tend to be able to survive or make it through. Both Kitty and Suichi have some mild signs of spiral infection at various stages, but seem to be able to overcome it, as though it was a virus that their immune system defeated, leaving them resistant. Similarly, Kitty's father is one of the earlier infected. He manages to survive, though seems susceptible to that particular type of spiral subversion for the rest of the story. Suichi's family is not so fortunate. Very occasionally, however, the curse actually seems to work as something of a boon to the victims, in a twisted sort of way, pun intended. The first chapter revolves around Suichi's father, who has become increasingly obsessed with spirals. That obsession goes so far that he actually starts to distort bodily. He doesn't seem to be distressed by this, though. There's an almost religious rapture in each new disturbing development. Similarly, two young people facing a Shakespearean tragedy in a later chapter, lovers separated by warring families, find themselves literally becoming inseparable as they twist together. Other characters, though, definitely don't get any kind of benefit from the curse. One girl seems to accept the spiral into herself somehow and initially benefits from the effects but is physically consumed by it as it grows. Another character mutates into a human-snail hybrid for some reason, and yet another mutilates herself attempting to remove all the spirals from her body, fingerprints and all. All this happens in just the first few chapters as the curse begins to spread through the town. One difference between Lovecraft and Ido is how they approach telling stories. Manga is all about storytelling primarily through images and the visuals carry a large part of the horror. As you read Uzumaki, you'll be feasting your eyes on all manner of disturbing art for as long as you can stand to turn the pages. Ito has a particular style that adds to the disturbing nature of whatever he's drawing. Somewhere between sketch realism and suggestive mark-making, the classic manga black-and-white prints add to the bleak feeling evoked by the story. You'll be left in no doubt as to what he's showing you at a glance, but there's a level of detail to each panel that forces you to study these horrific images in order to extract the full meaning from them. Manga is very rooted in Japanese culture, and therefore there will be some things we Western readers sadly miss out on due to the cultural differences. Much of Ito's work relates to the Japanese cultural ideas, in the same way that Stephen King's stories are heavily grounded in Americana. 
Usually, spiral patterns mark characters' cheeks in Japanese comedy cartoons, representing the effect of warmth, explains Ito. However, I thought it could be used in horror if I drew it in a different way. Those with more understanding of Japanese culture will undoubtedly notice all kinds of subversions like this that amp up the horror. For the rest of us, there's still plenty of less subtle horror in there. There's a scene fairly early in Uzumaki where the crematorium becomes unusable because of terrible, terrible things happening to the ashes. So the townsfolk decide to stop cremating bodies and instead bury them. Kitty and many other characters find this idea in itself disturbing, since cremation is mandatory in Japan. However, to us, burying the dead is quite normal, and even a cornerstone of some of our most enduring horror. Ito also heavily references a type of old-fashioned Japanese housing known as a row house, which the town folk are forced to fall back on later in the story. While it's easy to understand what he means, for a Western reader, there's no cultural underpinning. It's just a crappy old house. But Ito doesn't use them lightly, and some of his intended meaning is obviously lost in translation. Throughout Uzumaki, Junji Ito delivers horror from two angles, psychological and the more gory sort. The psychological aspect comes in right from the start as the first manifestations of the curse were introduced to take the form of obsession. In this regard, Uzumaki really is comparable to some of the best of Lovecraft's works, as characters become unhinged. It's Ito's ability to visually represent this that really stands out. With each page, you are shown a progression of subtle changes that slide from psychological horror into body horror and the subversion and distortion of the human form. For this writer, personally, one of the early stories that makes me shudder, even now, is the poor woman that becomes phobic of spirals. Wonderfully and terrifyingly, Ito foreshadows what is to come when she's first admitted to the hospital. We see a wall chart in the doctor's office showing a cutaway of the human head, revealing that the cochlea in the inner ear is a spiral shape. This is how Ito plays with both the characters in Uzumaki as well as the reader. We as the reader know what's likely to happen, at least in a vague sense, many pages before it comes. Just like the residents of Kurozucho know they are falling victim to the spiral curse. The magic is that when it does happen, Ito still finds a way to make it more viscerally disturbing than you might have imagined. Being introduced to a character that is obsessed with spirals enough to have trained his freakishly elongated tongue to curl back on itself should give us a hint as to what his eventual fate will be. When you reach the end of that chapter, though, the full horror of what he's done to himself is revealed in a glorious full-page illustration. There have been a couple adaptations of Uzumaki to other formats, most notably the 2000 live-action film directed by Akihiro Higuchi, which by all accounts is okay. As with many live-action versions of printed works, it doesn't quite capture the feel of the original and should be viewed as its own entity. 
Generally, though, manga makes the jump to anime very effectively. One Punch Man, Naruto, Attack on Titan, covered in issue 7, and many other popular anime titles started life as manga. This year, the anime version of Uzumaki will be released to the world, so if you're interested in the story but don't enjoy manga, it's likely to be a faithful and excellent adaptation. For a horror fan used to reading novels or watching films, it can be difficult to grasp the idea of a horror manga. It's very easy to think of them simply as comic books, which, while technically accurate, gives potential readers misleading impressions as to their capacity to portray true horror and not just gore and violence. When I started reading manga, I found I was mostly reading the captions and speech bubbles, and only glancing at the associated images, and therefore moving through books very quickly, as there's not much actual text. After a while, a knowledgeable friend advised me to study the pictures more, take my time with each page, see how the artist tells the story with the illustrations. For me, that was enough to make Uzumaki a really unique experience. One whose particular impact could only really be achieved through manga. Uzumaki is weird, horrifying, unsettling, and original. It plays with fear on several levels, in a way that only manga seems able to achieve. To those who haven't come across it yet, it might be time to seek it out. Board Game Review 8-Bit Box and Double Rumble Ever since the first recognisable intellectual properties in video games, designers have tried to translate them into board games. I remember playing the Pac-Man and Frogger board games in the 80s. 8-Bit Box develops that concept with their board game console, a series of games using shared components and joypad-style control dials. 8-Bit Box is unique, but I suspect it has been overlooked simply because bad box design will deter most potential customers. A new idea like this needs packaging which clearly communicates the concept. Sadly, the blurb on the box is misjudged. The game features controllers with digital rotation technology, 72-pixel 3D mobile high-definition, and a DJI BTX1080 graphics card. These are intentional jokes. Digital rotation technology refers to turning a dial with your thumb. 72-pixel 3D is 72 plastic cubes, and DJI BTX1080 is a play on the name of the graphic designer. The problem is that if you're not already in on the joke, it's easy to take these at face value. Controllers with digital technology are an actual thing. A DJI BTX1080 sounds like a real graphics card, and 72-pixel 3D mobile high-definition is no more absurd than much of the techno jargon which litters electronic products. There's even an image of a standard Kettle plug adapter, along with SCART and Phono outputs. I'm sure in a design meeting these jokes were on the money, but to the uninitiated consumer unclear on the contents of the box on the shelf, they are confusing. There's nothing to assure a potential buyer that this is an entirely analogue product. This, along with many other games, would benefit from a picture somewhere on the box which shows the game set up and being played. Which is a shame because the games in the box are great fun. The star is probably Pixoid, instantly recognisable as a take on Pac-Man. Players take it in turn to be the hunted Pixoid, while the others chase them. Moves are chosen secretly on the controllers, and then revealed simultaneously, with the Pixoid scoring for the number of turns they survive. 
It's a brilliant and clearly communicated concept, in which the narrow escapes and light frustration created by the inability to communicate make it a light, amusing and gripping game. Next is Outspeed, a futuristic racing game in which players work through a series of obstacle cards towards either victory at the finish line or through eliminating the opposition. Think Wipeout for reference. Each card has a choice of lanes, again chosen in secret and revealed simultaneously. Interestingly, the cost and reward of each lane can vary depending on how the players bid. For example, one lane may offer a significant boost, but if more than two players choose that lane, they all lose a turn, allowing the player who chose the slow but steady lane to move ahead. There is some nice tactical play here, such as dropping back to allow a weapon to be more effective. But the best thing about Outspeed is its experimentation with the prisoner's dilemma, forcing players to try to second-guess each other. The third bundled game is Stadium. I found this the most interesting in the base game, and also the hardest to get played since it requires exactly four or six players, split into two teams. Players compete in a series of sporting events, such as golf, fencing, swimming and basketball. Most games are a mix of secretly bidding an amount of stamina and dice rolls. For example, the pole vault is in the style of a Dutch auction, where each player chooses whether they will jump or wait. If all players wait, the height of the bar is lowered to a lesser stamina cost. The first player who jumps gains a gold medal, but will have paid the highest cost. Stadium isn't a game you'll perform well at on your first play, since the knowledge required to eke out your available stamina across 10 events come from experience. However, I really enjoy the variety of each event, and the random selection of games each time, even if each minigame requires its own page in a supplementary rulebook. Last, Double Rumble has just been released as the first expansion. This is a Streets of Rage style game, in which two martial artists battle through a series of advancing enemies, eventually challenging a boss. Unlike the others, this is a cooperative game for two players, or solo, and is more of a strategic puzzle experience. Enemies have a weakness to certain moves, but changing moves on the player's controllers costs a health point, while overcoming some enemies provides bonuses, such as health regeneration and free stance changes. In spirit, it channels a pandemic-style puzzle of resource management and tactical choices. Where your own mileage may vary with Double Rumble is in two-player. Often the strongest solution is for one fighter to take a backseat while the other cleverly chains reward combos to clear levels in an efficient manner. If your enjoyment of a co-op game comes from agreeing the strategy between you, then Double Rumble is very satisfying. But if you want to use your own character to choose moves and get rewards, this may not be an equal experience for both players. 8-Bit Box is a strange beast. None of the games on their own make 8-Bit Box an essential purchase, and since each game has different player count requirements, it's potentially going to be difficult to bring out on board game nights. On the other hand, because every game has different requirements, usually at least one of the games in 8-Bit Box will be suitable. With influences such as Pac-Man, Wipeout, Track and Field and Streets of Rage, many will want to play for the nostalgia factor alone. Ultimately, it's a box of casual mini-games, a light party game for board gamers who dislike party games. If it reminds me of anything, it's turning up to a friend's house with an SNES and a bag full of controllers and games. Each title is simple, short, and not too mentally taxing, and hopefully at least one of the cartridges will lead to stories of a fun night. 8-Bit Box is published by Lello, and retails £43.99. The expansion, Double Rumble, retails for £13.99. A Guide to a Flat, Turtle-Powered World, Terry Pratchett's Discworld.
With its first instalment, The Colour of Magic, published in November 1983, Sir Terry David John Pratchett introduced one of the most beloved worlds in his fantasy genre, albeit a flat one. In 2005, I met a lovely girl who would later become my wife. The introduction came through a dear friend, who happened to be a huge Discworld fan. He lent me the first book from the series that I ever read, Guards, Guards. Why don't you let me read the first one, I asked, although I'd already seen the cover art and was keen to get started. This is our first one, he replied. Discworld has many storylines, and I'm sure you'll enjoy reading about Sam Vines and The Watch. The lovely woman who became my wife decided to buy me, slowly, the entire collection. Now I own those 41 novels, as well as several other works by Terry Pratchett. She also became a fan, much more so than I. We have a lot of love for this series, so if you're unfamiliar, let me share it with you. Discworld is a disc-shaped world. It exists because of magic. It's held up by four gigantic elephants, which stand on top of a huge ancient turtle that travels through space, and yes, we know where it's going. This world has cities, mountains, magic, politics, science, guilds, but the best thing? It's one of the best critiques on humanity and modern society you'll read, some of its characters even seem to know this. In it you can find Ankh-Morpork, a city where magic and industry clash in disruptive ways. In 2002, when Canton in Somerset became the first city to be twinned to a fictional one. That's how magical the Discworld is. That's how magical Sir Terry Pratchett was. Why should you read it? Because it's way more than the sum of its parts. Discworld relates to most of the current themes in the world as we experience it today, even inside a magic fueled politically intricate, culturally mixed fantasy setting. It's extremely well written, the stories are excellent, and Terry was a wonderful human being that deserves every bit of praise you can find. Have I mentioned the amazing humour? The books are very, very funny. Although I've read all the novels, I have to admit that the only story arc that I read sequentially is the one introduced in Guards, Guards, and it's that of The Watch. In it, you'll find not only interesting background information on Ankh-Morpork and its many residents and its particularly nauseating river, but also extremely funny crime stories. Ah, the high blood pressure, the drinking and the pilfering. It's urban crime fantasy at its best. If police procedurals don't tickle your fancy, maybe witches or wizards interest you. Witches have that down-to-earth, no-nonsense, natural kind of powerful magic. Wizards, on the other hand, have a tendency to be epidemically uptight, yet powerful too. But if something in between those paws appeals more, you're in luck. Rincewind, a very inept wizard, is introduced in the first novel, and his story will allow you to understand a bit more about every other single book in the series. The first books in the canon are part of the wizard's storyline. I could tell you just to start with the story arc that is, in my opinion, the best. Death. In Discworld, Death is a character, not just something that happens, and he has a daughter. Oh, the suffering. Maybe you're more interested in the ancient civilizations of Discworld history. There are a couple of books that deal with those. 
If you're interested in industrial revolution or revulsion, as the official Harper's Reading Guide to Discworld puts it, then the monkey business going on around Mr Moist von Lipwig would probably make you laugh, or perhaps cry a little. I won't attempt to make a suggestion as to the reading order, because this isn't just a matter of timelines. It's such a huge universe, and some stories might feel a bit reused. But that is certainly part of the charm. The books hold a mirror to our contemporary society and force us to recognise our past too. I will venture that starting at the beginning, the Rincewind arc, might not be the best idea. The series is best approached arc by arc. I made that mistake with my firstborn. I should have insisted on him reading about the witches or the watch. Once you have chosen a story arc, I do recommend that you read it chronologically. Terry Pratchett loved language, and that is apparent in every single book in the series. The sheer page-inches of footnotes will most certainly distract you from the actual story, until you notice the effect it has on the actual storytelling. There is more than one story. Pratchett practically reads next to you. He is felt as a constant presence who interacts with the characters. It might make you feel like you are part of the story. The different arcs deal with a number of important topics, such as gender identity, learning disabilities, socio-economic issues, and strong cultural conflicts, to name just a few. It's testament to the calibre of Pratchett as a writer that these are mostly discussed with sensitivity as well as biting humour. The book's juxtaposition, technology, alongside magic. Sociology, next to ignorance. You can't say this about many books, but they might just help you to grow as a human being, if my experience is anything to go by. Mini of the Month, Haruk Ironeye The sky was clear for the first time in an age, light blue and streaked with errant clouds, clear and crisp from horizon to horizon. Looking up into the sky... Haruk wondered what it would be like to have open skies and clean air every day. Even his breathing, usually harsh in his ears through the ancient rebreather, rasped through his throat and filled scarred lungs until they stretched and ached. It was a beautiful sort of pain, like the throb of a well-trained muscle after a day of honest work. Haruk was no stranger to strain. It was the honest work that seemed so alien and distant to him. Out here, honest folk got stepped on. They got pushed down, they got killed. In the waste, honesty was more lethal than ash storms and solar flares combined. And it was contagious too. Trust and rust rhymed for a reason. Both would eat away at the firmament of things, make them brittle, give them weak spots. And Haruk felt his weak spots all too clearly. There were the scarred lines where his hard suit had rubbed his skin raw over years of constant wear. Lumps in his arms, his neck and his groin that wept black blood whenever the needleman sliced them open. The grating movements of his bionic eye whenever he looked from side to side. His hair was chopped short enough to stand on its own and the braids of his beard fell lank and silvered over his chest. That silver was turning to grey now, faded by baking sun and scoured by unyielding winds. The sound of engines made him look down towards the northeast. A great plume of dust marked a distant convoy picking through the maze of rocky outcroppings toward the trade towns on the other side. The path was treacherous, but short, a frequent temptation for waste merchants with little patience and even less sense. 
Rock falls and raider bands were commonplace, and anyone coming through would need to be armed, armoured, and would still be lucky to make the pass unscathed. Enjoying the view, old man? The voice had a low, grating edge that made Harut's fists clench. He replied without turning, eyes still fixed on the dust plume. Convoy is coming in. Looks like a land crawler. You're going to lead the charge with me, Kralk? Oh, bunch of credits when we haul the loot away. Where I see it, only one of us needs to be at the front of that charge. And you're not in the running, Greybeard. At this, Haruk turned. Kralk's hair, styled into a red mohawk thick with engine oil, nearly came up to Haruk's neck. The smaller man's eyes were bloodshot, fixed with a manic intensity on his older companion. Haruk took a couple of steps forward. If Kralk was scared to be in Haruk's shadow, he didn't show it. Why now, Kralk? That's all we need on that land crawler down there. Can't afford to make ourselves weaker by... We'll be stronger without dead weight like you. Kralk's hand began to creep closer to the shotgun at his waist. The whir click of Haruk's eye made him pause. The two men stood for a long moment at an impasse. Haruk's fingers traced the handle of his cleaver in a slow, lazy circle. Dead weight. That's rich. How much juice did you have to do before you had the stones to come up here? Before Kralk could begin to answer, Haruk had already moved. The flat of his cleaver blade struck the shotgun from the smaller man's fist and a savage backhand sent him sprawling in the dust in a shocked, retching heap. Juice wasn't kind to a man's system, especially in high doses. Haruk took another deliberate step and stood over Kralk like the avatar of a furious god, the red glow of his eye pinning Kralk to the ground more surely than any blade. I should put a bullet in you right now for pulling something like that. His hand fell to the well-worn bolt gun on his hip, and Kralk cringed back into the dirt, waiting for the end right there and then. But it didn't come. He opened his eyes to see Haruk once again looking out to the dust plume, which had still drawn closer even as they fought. Haruk spoke again. Go down and get the others ready. We're taking that crawler. I always loved the term techno-barbarian. From the works of John Blanche down to modern interpretations, the mixture of savagery and technology creates this potent feeling of loss and decay. For Haruk, leader of my Necromunda Goliath gang, I wanted an impression of fading strength adding to the mix. His time is coming, and he won't go down easy. The mini itself consists of a Blight King's body, Goliath boots for the legs, a Space Wolf head, and a Mark III bolter and decorative badge from the Imperial Knight kit. The whole thing is held together by green stuff and far too much superglue. Let's talk about Altered Carbon Season 2. Well, I've just finished this and really enjoyed it. I loved the first season of Altered Carbon. I loved the dark futuristic setting. I loved the depiction of social dystopia and the noiry feel. It's still a load of nonsense, obviously. Visions of the future involving humanoid AIs scampering about, and people fighting each other in VR constructs. It's starting to look as dated today as Asimov's predictive future of androids driving forklifts. But it's great fun. I was a real fan of season one, prompting me to rush out and buy the books, which I've yet to read. The rampant dystopian setting is one that really appeals to me, and is great as inspiration for games and stories of my own. I absolutely loved the first season. It was well-directed, beautifully shot, and the narrative was revealed in a very well-calculated way, so that it never felt like anything was missing. 
As much as it pains me to say, the second season was missing just the right elements to make me feel like the essence of the show had been left on the ice together with the Bancrofts. Like my partner said, the second season feels like a low-budget altered carbon fan fiction with 200% more emotional speeches and 0% envoy intuition. One of the things I loved about the first season was the grim depiction of rampant inequality. Yes, there was lots of punching and shooting and people with LEDs on their heads, but underneath all that, there were some chewy questions about what happens to us when you extend human life ad infinitum. What that means for families, inheritance, inequality, and so on. The first season's inherently personal mystery thriller format was also one of its strengths. The second season dwells on these questions less and is less thoughtful in general. The fundamental sci-fi what-if that underpins the franchise is still there, and it's still interesting, but it's explored less. I was interested in the idea of resleeving, an effective immortality through clone bodies. What is it like to be resleeved into the wrong body? But I'm guessing these are questions more effectively dealt with in the books than in the TV series, though it does attempt it in passing. I was also intrigued by the glitches and degradation suffered by the AI character Poe, and his obvious distress at the idea of a reboot that might take his memories and thus destroy the core of what made him him. Interesting that the human character seemed to care little about his friend, or his obvious distress. Is that a throwback to the servile past when AI are little more than servants, toys and entertainment? Less than human? I was hoping that the exploration of social, economic and political implications of the cortical stack technology would continue in the second season, but alas, the themes that gave me, and surely many other viewers, opportunities to relate, reflect and engage were absent. The second season disrupted the multi-layer conversation about things like the place of religion in the altered carbon world, or the way individuals cope with being cross-sleeved against their will, and replaced it with a love story with plenty of forced interactions and a competition about who gets to save the day. I'd tentatively suggest that the action scenes in season 2 might actually be better than season 1. I really enjoyed the gunplay and the martial arts scenes. They reminded me of Equilibrium, with all the silly batting people's guns away at point blank. Ah, yes. I love a bit of gun-fu action. I'm going to disagree with Tom, though. Season 1 was definitely better. Season 2 was trying to offer more, but somehow didn't manage to deliver. It could be that it didn't have the budget of the original. I felt the political history of both Harlan's world and the Kellist movement should have been handled head-on in episode 1, rather than left flopping about. I mean, it's not like our protagonist is a stranger to this planet. He grew up there. He lived there. So it's not like you're learning alongside him as he discovers these things. There were good bits of writing, especially in the later episodes. Why is it always fix it then die with you really made me smile. There were definitely some nicely paced scenes. The choreography of the fight scenes was really good too. Bringing Kelchrist Falconer back as a main character was interesting. She overshadows Tageshi Kovacs throughout. She thinks bigger, she's more dominant, and she has more agency. I quite like that change in dynamic. I have to admit, I rolled my eyes at the return of Quirkrist. It all felt a little contrived. But then I've yet to read the book upon which the series is based, so I have no idea how close to the original the second season is. What I really did like was the idea of physical memory, that a person is more than just a mind or just a stack. This was touched on a little in season one, but more so in season two, when our hero inflicts an injury on himself to remember who knifed him. I think this is likely one of the most interesting questions posed by Altered Carbon so far. Are humans losing part of their humanity by treating their bodies as disposable assets, 
not just body swapping, but loss of physical memories that augment the intellectual personality within the stack. In fact, the stack is just a copy of the mind, so it would be interesting to explore the difference between what is in the stack and what is in the organic mind and body of the original. Ironically, Poe's character was the most human and relatable element of the second season, and also the one that redeems it. The second season is a bit more epic in scope than the first, and, in my view, the weaker for it. There is a mystery here, a pretty good whodunit as well as a why done it. But that falls away about 60% of the way through the series to leave a standard race against time to save the world. In lots of ways, the series feels more generic. The showrunners play standard, tired TV tricks with us of the they're dead, lol, no they're not variety. I did a lot of eye-rolling during the first few episodes. Oh look, the return of Quellcrest, who should most definitely have been dead for the last 280 years. Oh, another AI hotel to shack up in that looks like an exact replica of the first, thanks to Poe's nanotech. Oh, look, I'm not just going to execute you, Mr. Bond. I'm going to make a slow spectacle of it so that you can escape. Yawn. I also agree that the budget for season two seemed smaller than for one. It didn't feel as panoramic in a way. I didn't feel the city was as spectacular, and most of the scenes seemed to be filmed in a handful of interior locations or woodland. This isn't a criticism as much as an observation, but one of the things I enjoyed most about season one was the juxtaposition between the opulence and splendour of the homes of the rich above the clouds and the cyberpunk neon slums of the city below. I don't think season two had an equivalent to that. The underlying problem with the second season was the striking lack of attention to detail, which had originally impressed me in the first season. This is where I believe most of the issues stem from. The script failed to deliver intellectually stimulating lines, even when the narrative built up to moments that not only allowed, but even required it. I was looking forward to seeing more of the amazing camera work, editing, and the stylistic choice of using implicit audiovisual hints in order to show things without really showing them. Unfortunately, there wasn't thorough stylistic continuity into the second season, and I ended up disappointed by the absence of things like the trippy effects in VR and dramatic slow-motion close-up shots that gave the combat scenes in season 1 some artistic value. Even if the budget for season 2 was smaller, I think that if more ingenuity had been involved in the technical approach towards directing and shooting, it would have eliminated certain awkward moments of the Power Rangers-type combat scenes. For me, the biggest downfall of this season was that Takeshi Kovacs somehow went from being a notorious, hilariously cynical and weirdly relatable anti-hero to a good old glossy, boring, stoic protagonist. Joel Kinnaman's Takeshi had a dark and twisted sense of humour, made use of his envoy intuition, carried around a small pink backpack that was either equipped with guns or copious amounts of drugs, and was addictively entertaining. Subjectively, the personality of Anthony Mackie's Takeshi has been replaced by the ability to summon guns. This is not me saying that Mackie didn't play the role well, but rather that his role wasn't written well. The lack of continuity in quality writing also affect the performances of Will Jun Lee, Takeshi's original sleeve, and René Elise Goldsbury, Quelchris Falconer, who felt like they were different characters in season one. One thing that hasn't changed, though... In both seasons, Takeshi winds up double-sleeved and one of them is always taking a shower. Season 2 does some interesting things, particularly focusing so heavily on Kelchrist Falconer as a main character, but it feels intellectually lightweight compared to the first, with none of the thought experiments and explorations of what its sci-fi assumptions could lead to. That said, I did enjoy it. It's well-structured, fun, well-paced and entertaining. Yeah, Season 2 was definitely less intellectually challenging. I'd hoped for more on the Elders. 
I had expectations, having read the back of Broken Angel's book sleeve, that I don't think were met. It's all in the detail, said Kovacs while strolling along Bancroft's gallery in season one. Too bad they forgot about that in season two. Why HeroQuest is still amazing. Recently, a friend decided he really wanted to play HeroQuest, first released in 1989, and embarked on his own quest to track down a complete copy of the game. No less than two weeks later, he'd bought a near-mint set from eBay and gathered our party. I'll admit, I wasn't convinced. I'd only vague memories of playing it once or twice back in the early 90s, and I couldn't imagine a 30-year-old game holding up today especially with us jaded, grizzled game jockeys using our future smarts to defeat what were surely primitive rules. I was wrong. The models are great. I actually still have some Games Workshop figures from the 80s and 90s. The one that haunts me is the plastic Space Marine from the 40k box of the era, where they're a boxy block and the guns clip to the front, and they look something like mortuary statues. I was expecting something similar from HeroQuest, and I was wrong. That's going to happen a lot during this article. The models look decent in photos, but actually holding them is something else. They're very nicely detailed, not quite up to modern standards of course, but absolutely wonderful for board game miniatures. The plastic has aged excellently, as in, not at all. And even in their raw, unpainted state, the sculpting means you can easily identify the different types of enemies as they appear on the board. The hero models suffer slightly from homogenous poses, only the dwarf avoids some accidental confusion in the heat of the moment. But really, all things considered, Top Marks Games Workshop from the past. Top Marks. Compared to most games these days, the cards for HeroQuest are quite simple. The majority have little more than a couple of sentences explaining what the thing is. Then, any relevant information like exclusions, cost or special features. The fronts are black and white, and the backs are groovy fantasy art in full colour. They look almost too simple as though somehow they couldn't possibly actually work properly. Certainly when you compare them to the cards from something like a modern deck builder, or similar, they seem primitive. But you know what? They work fine. I played as the wizard, so I had a lot of cards, and the simplicity actually worked in my favour. With something like 12 cards to manage, the simple style, simple descriptions and line art image, I was easily able to learn what each one did within the first game without any effort at all. The unusual board works surprisingly well too. I would say my earliest experience of seriously playing a board game with miniatures and dice rolling is Space Hulk, somewhere in the mid-90s. I mostly remember having to awkwardly shuffle things around when the corridors got too big and you needed to tile a new one in. And as a kid playing on the floor where the carpet wasn't quite even, it was, um, awkward. Then the clean-up. So many corridor tiles, so many models. HeroQuest surprised me again. When you first see that board, it seems like it can't possibly be good to play on. However, the movement rules combined with the innovative door system means that you can make a vast number of permutations on that one board. And it's all a predefined size, which isn't going to get any larger. For those that don't know, the board is essentially a cross of single square corridors and four clusters of room spaces with no doors. The doors are standalone objects that the Game Master places according to a map. This means the quest you're on can allow access to the rooms in different combinations. And the way the doors lead into the rooms themselves actually forms a pretty tactical part of the overall gameplay experience. Movement is done via rolling 2d6, 
This randomness means that all your carefully laid plans can fall apart when you roll poorly and creep along in single digits, while the rest of the party are rolling double digits and storming off goblin slaying. This is accentuated by the GM's models having fixed movement, which means we often found that there was an inherent uncertainty as to whether we'd get close enough to attack or roll enough to avoid attack. We found ourselves making contingency plans and having to continually adapt to whatever the movement role was for each character. Simple movement becomes a tactical element of the game. Added to this, you can't move diagonally across squares, nor move back over squares you crossed in that turn. If you open a door and find yourself confronted by many enemies, you can't back out of the way. Sometimes this space allows you can sidestep, but it's rarely enough to avoid combat. Nor can you attack diagonally, without specific weapons that we didn't get until later. Again, this seems strange, but it adds another very tactical element to how your party moves and positions themselves as a group. If you don't think through your move, you might prevent your buddy from helping in the fight at all. All in all, these simple, easy-to-remember rules for movement and combat made the game a highly tactical, team-based experience. We needed to coordinate movement every single round in order to make sure the most vulnerable party members weren't exposed to too much danger and or blocking off other party members while at the same time staying close enough to be able to use spells and support the group. The elf wasn't so bad, having both spells and some combat abilities. The dwarf was similar, both characters able to be fairly flexible with placement. The barbarian was wasted if he wasn't continually in combat, since he lacked any other ability, and he also made a great meat shield. But it wasn't always possible to get him into position, so even knowing the optimal placement for each character, we had to be pretty dynamic each round. Interestingly, we quickly realised that the wizard spells allowed us to mix things up fairly well, providing we use them at the right moment, and the dwarf saved us more than once from several nasty traps that would have really caused us problems. The elf, as a sort of half-fighter, half-wizard, did a lot of floating around and picking off enemies around the barbarian, but was tough enough to take the lead when necessary. Considering the combat rules are so simple, it's surprising that the combat felt satisfying, tactical, and also pretty dangerous. Rounds ended quickly, but with only a few body points on our side, things could go badly fast if the rolls didn't go our way. One thing that really hit me was how quickly the GM was able to explain the rules to us. It took maybe a couple of minutes, and we were off playing. Again, this was really refreshing, as the last few miniatures baseball games I've played took at least 30 minutes to even get the gist of the rules, and we spent most of the first games having to painfully check each move to figure out if it was right. These games are always fun when you know the rules, but that learning curve can be punishing, and sometimes a little off-putting. One game my friend bought, we never even played. The rules were so dense and complex, we just couldn't face it. With such simple rules, I wasn't really expecting the game to be much fun. As I've covered above, the movement and combat are surprisingly tactical. But more than that, the way doors, scenery and searching function is quick easy to remember, and forces choices within the flow of the game. I could easily imagine being able to explain the rules to young children and have them playing and enjoying the game almost immediately. Or I guess drunk adults. My friend said he wanted to play two games. The first, a lower level one to get us used to the rules, then a slightly higher level one to see what it's like. I was really surprised when he said he thought it would take about 45 minutes each. He wasn't far off in reality either. And that includes unpacking the set. It was a refreshing change. It felt just about long enough to feel decently immersed, but not so long that we were looking for mid-game breaks and finding it hard to keep the players focused on the task at hand. We progressed at a casual pace, 
but the turns were fast enough that we remained engaged while others were moving too. Partially, I imagine it's down to the fact that even if you used all the rooms on the board, there's a statistical limit to how long it would take a group of four players to navigate the maze and achieve the objectives. But also, I think it's down to how easy to play the game is as a whole. Every turn, every player was rapidly able to determine what they could and couldn't do and take action. And even when we stopped to discuss it as a group, the limited options meant that it didn't take more than a minute or two extra. Since we're all role players at heart, we were even able to inject a few bits of roleplay into it as we went along. We turned dice rolls into descriptions of amusing mistakes and fumbles, or added simple flavour descriptions to encounters or rooms. I could imagine how you could easily use HeroQuest as a framework for a much more deliberate role-playing game, without going into any more effort than describing things in more detail. Another surprise is that you can continue your character between games. In fact, that's how it's supposed to be played, as a campaign. You gather loot and items as you go, and can even purchase items between games to help you out in your next adventure. So, there you go. If you have the opportunity, give HeroQuest a go. Classics of Science Fiction Flowers for Algernon This is the semi-regular feature in which we look back at the seminal works of science fiction, the stories that outraged, baffled and appalled, the books that posited answers a generation before anyone thought to ask the questions, the novels that bent society's collective consciousness around them and seeded popular culture and humanity's vision of itself to this day. From Frankenstein to Foundation, these are the books that blew our minds and created are a genre. Charlie Gordon has an IQ of 68 and is an edge case for institutionalisation. Thanks to his father, he holds a job at a bakery as a menial assistant, which he enjoys. He attends classes at the Beekman Institute for Retarded Adults, where he's put forward for an experimental new surgery by his teacher, who's impressed by his desire to learn. The experiment builds upon radical new research in improving brain power. A rat called Algernon has already received it, with dramatic results. Charlie's surgery is ostensibly a success, and over the next few months, Charlie's IQ doubles. At the peak of his powers, however, Algernon's begin to precipitously decline. Charlie must come to terms with the ephemerality of his expanded horizons. Flowers for Algernon is an epistolary novel told through Charlie's diary entries. It's an example of this format done superbly. The narrator's lens gives tragic weight to the events recounted, and his developing ability to do so sets the pace of the story's arc. The early chapters are childlike. When I waked up this morning, right away I thought I was going to be smart, but I'm not. Every morning, I think I'm going to be smart, but nothing happens. As the novel progresses, Charlie's progress reports become more lucid. He starts using punctuation and his spelling improves. He begins to see that his friends at the bakery largely see him as a figure of fun and remembers events from his childhood with new clarity and insight. 
Flowers for Algernon is Daniel Key's most famous work. It was first published in 1959 as a short story for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, winning that year's Hugo Award. It was later expanded into a novel, developing Charlie's memories and relationships, and was printed in 1966, winning that year's Nebula Award. Sometimes I read a novel that, when the last page is turned, demands I just sit with it and reflect for a while. This is one of those. It is short, tight and near perfect, with a handful of characters, a short time frame and few events. Within that narrow scope, a dramatic range of themes are masterfully explored. The changing ways those around Charlie treat him spark interesting questions. How blissful is ignorance? How easy is it to be friendly with someone you're intimidated by? How much does our intelligence shape our character? As his intellect peaks, these questions become achingly poignant. The novel is pitiless. Charlie is triple cursed, his intelligence too far below that of his peers to be amongst them, and he yearns to be like them. Cruelly, the surgery elevates him to heights far beyond them, a position he finds just as isolating, but now he's painfully aware of. But it's his degradation that's truly agonising. His last interaction with the person closest to him is an angry altercation, and despite his overtures, there's no beautiful reconciliation with his parents. The shadow of the Warren State home hangs over the book. At the peak of his powers, Charlie visits it, anticipating his future incarceration. His voluntary seclusion there, at the novel's close, marks the end of his diaries and his tragic story. Keyes has an adroit grasp of human nature and psychology. Charlie's consistent defining feature throughout the book, and why he's selected for the experiment, is his ardent craving to better himself. As his intelligence increases, and he reflects upon his upbringing more clearly, a cause for this desire emerges. His mother spent his early years dabbling with quackery to fix him, and then washed her hands of him and insisted on his being institutionalised when it became clear that his learning difficulties could not be cured. For a novel written in the middle of the 20th century, in which social attitudes to learning disabilities were mostly dismissive or unhelpful, Key's treatment of them is sensitive, though the language used in the book reflects the norms of its times. It's difficult to think of a flaw in the book. Perhaps Ascended Charlie seems too different to the original Charlie. He shares none of his affability or goodwill. But how intelligence changes character is an open question. The separation between the two versions of the narrator come to a point in the last act, in which he begins to see his former self, mutely watching him. This subplot arguably doesn't add much, and separating the two versions of the character to this extent perhaps undermines the importance of the transition. But these are mean, desperate criticisms. Flowers for Algernon is as close to perfection as novels achieve. It is a masterpiece of the first-person format and handles its clutch of characters deftly. But more than this, it's an achingly sad study in decay and how terrible the knowledge is that we're diminishing. Since the novel was written, we've mastered many of the things that formerly cut short human life. Dementia is now a shadow that hangs over many people's futures, far more so than in 1966. In this light, Flowers for Algernon feels like an important book. If we diminish, is it better to be ignorant of it? Is it possible to manage the decline?
Is it better not to know? Acid, Chapter 1, Tower of Light The Castillo Corporation has risen to ultimate power within the Protectorate Council, the government of the wealthy planet Venus, economic capital of the solar states. Rumours of massive misuse of power and corruption abound, but the Castillo Corporation is now untouchable. In response, a secretive cabal has emerged from the shadows of history. The monitors are whispered nightmares for any individual or group accused of misusing power. Now, a highly trained monitor agent has infiltrated the heart of the Castillo Empire. Monitor Denica Tame is about to discover that Venus isn't the shining jewel she thought she was protecting. Architecturally speaking, the 50-storey Tower of Light is little more than a tall conical structure. Hardly exciting. However, the innovation here isn't in physical design, it's in the materials used. Betty Alexander enhanced the standard aerogel, aerometal and bubblecrete materials used all over Venus, with a proprietary compound, resulting in the exterior of the tower glowing slightly. This gives the entire building a haunting halo, even visible from outside the dome if the cloud banks allow the view. It's strongly rumoured that the Castillo Corporation purchased the exclusive rights to the formula for the next thousand years, ensuring that no other building is ever quite so impressive. At the time, it was one of the three most expensive single construction projects in the city, equalled only by the Artificer's Mansion of the Berender family and the Novelero building commissioned by the first Marquis of the Inner Tradering. Extract from Architectural Digest, Issue 706, June 3523, by Valdez and McCann Publishing. Denica shooed the maid chimps out of her suite. It had been a long, hateful day of dances and tiny meals and too much alcohol, none of which she could enjoy properly. The dress she wore sliced into her in more places than she could count. She stood in the middle of her new apartment and admired herself in the mirror screen. You know, it's literally the most painful thing I've ever worn, but damn, I look good. She twirled one last time before tugging the unbutton. The dress peeled down and sagged, looking like a drooping mushroom. Denica's companion animal, Mawiri, a heavy, modified jet-black squirrel, bounded over, clutching a small medical scanner in her forepaws. Oh, thanks, little one. What did you think? The squirrel held the scanner up for Denica to take before making fast motions with her forepaws. Denica translated the signs without thinking. Costillo's dog was watching us. Mawiri signed. Denica ran the little tube over her abdomen. Green lines wove themselves across the tiny screen, everything showing normal. No toxins in the blood. At least no toxins that weren't supposed to be there, anyway. Yeah, but I don't know if that was a good thing or not. The pater was certainly showing an interest in me tonight. I wouldn't be surprised if this was it. Then he had never met Peter Oliviana Kirsten Polymia Castillo in person, despite working for the Castillo Corporation for years, but her insights had been set since day one on being promoted to the Peter's personal staff. A hidden function in the medical scanner showed only one active camera in the room, one less than yesterday, and three less than the day before. They were losing interest, their focus being pulled away by the multitude of guests during the ball. 
Maweri stretched with a tiny squirrel yawn, the sweep of her arm making the sign for remote observation. She'd spotted some extra surveillance the scanner wasn't picking up. Denica nodded at the squirrel. Tired, little one. Her companion stood on her hind legs, dexterous forepaws making quick signs. Will it be soon? The pair spoke carefully, aware they were being watched. Mawiri was far more intelligent than any standard gene-tailored companion, and she hated using such a cut-down vocabulary, but when they were so close to their goal, they had to be extremely cautious. Three more days. Well, three more days of this, then the wrap-up. Translation. The ball lasts for three more days. After that, we'll be pulling the trigger on the final stage. Good. Getting tired. Mawiri signed something that encompassed more than just the party. Me too. It had taken her five years to get this far. A few hacked databases, some well-paid actors for character references, a small fortune in bribes and donations. Denica slipped into the fast-track internship like she'd been born to this life. Years of training and grooming followed, doing menial administration duties for mid-level company managers. During those years, she'd been expected to develop a network of contacts, favours and information that allowed her to climb the ladder of corporate success. She let the sagging bell shape of her dress collapse completely to the floor. Stepping out of the pile of couture fabric, she padded barefoot to the bathroom. Mawiri dragged the dress towards the laundering chute, tidying up just as a simple executive companion animal should, making a show of it for the camera. Denica shook her head at the sight of the extravagant bathroom glinting at her. Real platinum on the fittings glinting in the light from a crystal fitting. She suppressed the rage. She'd been granted these apartments last week. This level of excess felt like another test. Could she resist the lure of so much power? She hated it all, but it was necessary. Just as she was. She was the counterweight to this, the knife cutting the necrotic flesh away to allow regrowth of new, healthy tissue. She recalled Janus, her mentor, lecturing her about the lineage of monitors, the responsibility, the weight of history. She had always felt proud of what she was, but it was so abstract during her decades of training it was difficult to imagine the decay she was to excise. For the last five years she'd been steadily immersed in the trappings of corruption, had seen the diversion of wealth away from the civic bodies towards private accounts and off-world investments. She enacted highly illegal activities and morally dubious actions on behalf of her employers, the Castillo Corporation. She couldn't help scrubbing herself harder under the purified water jets. When she'd finished showering, her dark skin tingled on the verge of pain. Denica returned to the spacious bedroom and dragged an antique wooden writing case from under her bed. It wasn't unusual for Denica to make notes, write reports, or correspondence to her many contacts in the evening. She almost always used the box. Security had examined it a dozen times over the last few years. It was a heavy wooden antique box that at one time would have been used as a small portable writing desk. At some point, someone had updated it, and now the upper surface contained an embedded slate and some basic processing functions to connect it to the tower's network. Apparently, 
At random, Denica wandered to a spot on the ornate rug and sank to a full lotus position, the wooden box on the floor before her. If anyone was watching through the remaining camera, they'd find their view of her blocked by a vase standing on a side table. A couple of twists and presses coaxed hidden compartments open in the portable desk, revealing that the wood was a sophisticated veneer. Partitions in what seemed like solid wood popped open and unfolded. Dull metallic tools nestled in recessed slots. Denica reached forwards and reverently stroked the instruments of her trade. Mawiri scurried over and unpacked a small cleaning kit, passing tools and lubricants silently to Denica as she worked. The assassin moved in practised motions, checking over her kit. The soft clicks of weapons assembling followed. Precise, clean, efficient. Methodically, she disassembled and cleaned everything once more and stowed it all back in its hiding places. The ritual reassured her. The familiar actions stripping away the veneer of the corporate lackey she'd been forced to adopt. She spent another hour catching up on some reports, making notes, and finally emailing a few friends, none of which were real. Time to sleep. Tomorrow we party. Again. Three days later, a hole silently melted itself in the window of Denica's tenth floor residential suite. A masked figure slipped through, into the half-light of nights on Capitol. It slowly crawled up the face of the tower, taking a strange zigzag route, avoiding illuminated windows. A fortune in bribes over the last few years ensured no security system recorded her presence or absence tonight. Denica's long, smart fabric poncho imperfectly copied the general colours and patterns of the walls as she climbed. She wore the traditional kitsune mask of the monitors, a stylized ancient earth creature known for cunning and stealth, almost feline, but with a longer, dog-like face. The mask's chameleon surface twinned with her poncho, both struggling to mimic the ghost light of the tower walls. Now. At just after midnight, the Tower of Lights formed half of Denica's world. The ambient glow reduced her reality to absolute black behind an eerie green-yellow light in front. Cutting-edge filaments modelled from modified spider DNA encased the arms and legs of her bodysuit, allowing her to crawl very carefully up the most vertical face of the tower. She didn't fear being seen. Anyone working this late probably wouldn't be gazing out of a window of a darkened office trusting her life to such a bleeding-edge piece of technology made her nervous. It's finally time, she thought. Muscles singing from the climb, she was breathing hard, but elated to be on the final portion of her years-long mission. Deftly, she palmed the small device from her belt and slapped it on a dark window. The dull metallic hemisphere bloomed open and several fat yellowish slugs oozed out. The highly modified mollusks slithered around surprisingly quickly, tracing an ever-expanding spiral circle outwards from the hub, leaving a glistening slime trail behind. As the spiral grew larger, bubbles formed along the slime trail. The plastic window wobbled and broke down, turning brown as it melted away in stringy drips. Denica slithered through the hole with a deep sigh of relief. The slugs were already slowing, 
reaching the end of their metabolic lifespan. Denica had entered a simple office several floors above from the apartment she'd been given on the residential floors. The insignificant little room she dropped into contained little other than a few shelves stacked with dusty files and a powered-down desk pushed up against one wall. Keeping this office empty had taken her months to arrange and cost her several favours. Having access to the low-security office levels made her ascent to the top floors much simpler, though. The exterior of the tower featured a range of very nasty security features, which got more aggressive the higher up you went. In contrast, she'd found it depressingly easy to find leverage on a low-level security administrator with secrets they'd prefer not to be publicly known. Once inside, the internal security for these last few levels was poor. Denica's biometric ID had already been entered into the system last night. She'd been promoted, as expected, to Oliviana's personal staff after the last day of the annual ball. This single step was why she'd spent so long worming her way into the pater's good books. No amount of bribery, threats or hacks could insert biometric ID into the upper floor security system. Without that, the elevator wouldn't function. More than that, it could literally explode, killing the occupant. Oliviana Costello occupied the top two floors of the tower. It was a fortress. There were precisely two ways to get in or out. The main elevator, which Denica rode now, and the roof the security of which would have required even more elaborate methods to bypass. Inside the elevator carriage, Denica quickly checked her equipment. She stripped off her spider gloves. They were already dying, the follicles dropping out and littering the floor with thick black hairs. Her adaptive poncho had calmed down after the oddity of the glowing tower walls, currently matching the wood panelling of the elevator interior. A bodysuit allowed excellent movement and contained better than military-grade flexible reactive armour. Woven into the backplate were pods of emergency medication. If she did get wounded, her suit would automatically stave off shock and administer a series of sophisticated drugs aimed at keeping her going, allowing her to finish her mission. Two wide silver medical bands wrapped each wrist, each of which would be triggered to inject a specialised cocktail into her bloodstream designed for off-world special forces, it would give her an edge in combat, but prolonged use wasn't advised. The bracelets also carried antidotes to the stims and drugs to suppress the debilitating come-down. For a time, she checked and loaded her pair of millimetre-thin dueling pistols. A Venusian classic patted her knives in their sheaths and pre-armed a few tiny silvered hemispheres of variable-yield explosives just in case things went wrong. Finally, she toggled the pigment on her mask from adaptive camouflage to the traditional white and red colour scheme. Part of her job was to carry on the myth. Survivors, or later observers of the security footage, would tell of an unstoppable assassin. One of the monitors. The lift pinged. The doors slid open. To be continued. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 9. 
This issue featured articles written by Angus McNichol, Arturo Busleman, Ben Potts, Chris Cunliffe, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eggles, Jonathan Whitelaw, Lewis Calvert, Thomas Turnbull, Ross Tom Grundy and Yana Kaleva, with special thanks to Aliette de Bodar and Karen Fishwick. It was edited by Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kai Zen, Kareem Crontley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding and Tom Grundy, and was edited by Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our patrons for their support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. 